0: Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point.
1: Welcome to Headline Buster, brought to you by The Point. I'm Li Chuan, sitting in for Liu Xin. In this series, I dissect stories that are making headlines around the world and talk to my guests to make up for the missing pieces of the puzzle. When this week, we'll look into China's economy, a topic that has made international headlines after the National Bureau of Statistics released its quarterly data on July 17th. China's GDP grew by 5.5% year-on-year in the first half of 2023. So despite the complex international environment and domestic challenges, that is in line with the full-year target of around 5% for 2023. From April to June, China's GDP growth stood at 6.3% year-on-year, the highest since 2022. Now, let's break it down. In the first half of the year, total retail sales of consumer goods maintained a relatively fast growth, of 8.2% year-on-year in January to June. Consumption contributed 77.2% to the economic growth. And China's total goods imports and exports expanded 2.1% year-on-year to 20.1 trillion yuan. That's about 2.81 trillion US dollars. Exports grew 3.7% year-on-year, while imports as down 0.1% from a year earlier. Note that China has overtaken Japan, becoming number one car exporter in the first quarter with 1.07 million of car sales. Let's listen to what the spokesperson at the National Bureau of Statistics sum up these
2: data. Globally, economic recovery has been sluggish since the beginning of the year with persistent inflationary pressures. Major economies have implemented monetary tightening measures to tackle inflation, which has led to noticeable spillover effects. However, In the face of these complex external challenges, China's economy has managed to outperform major developed economies, showcasing its robust resilience in economic development.
1: So how does China's GDP growth compare with other major economies? Still relatively high, said the spokesperson at the National Bureau of Statistics, with the United States at 1.8%, the Eurozone at 1%, Japan at 1.9%, and Brazil at 4% in the first quarter of 2023. What's more, China's growth rate in the first half of 2023 is projected to be among the highest. In January 2023, the World Bank forecast for China was 4.3%, but it raised to 5.6% in its forecast in June. However, it has revised down projections for most economies as a bumpy road still lies ahead. Now, in the latest update to its World Economic Outlook on July 25th, the IMF set its forecast for growth in China unchanged at 5.2% in 2023. Nevertheless, concerns over China's economy loom large as data in the first half of 2023 are partly driven by a low base from the same period last year. So, is China in trouble? Well, that's what The Economist wants its readers to believe. For the private sector, for example, of course, the Chinese government has already acknowledged the situation. On July 19th, China's State Council announced a raft of 31 measures to spur private sector growth, including removing barriers to market access and ensuring fair competition. And there's also youth unemployment. In June, the surveyed unemployment rate for young people aged 16 to 24 reached 21.3 percent, the highest since the data was first collected in the year 2018. However, it is projected to edge up in the coming months as more young people will be entering the job market. And to make it easier to find jobs, employers across the country will be encouraged to provide one million internships. A strong focus on vocational training will allow at least 15 million people to hone their job skills this year. What else needs to be done? Well, on July 24th, the Political Bureau of the Communist Party of China Central Committee held a meeting on economic work and set the tone for the second half of the year. The meeting pointed at an insufficient domestic demand, a sluggish private sector growth, some risks and hidden dangers in key areas, as well as a grim and complex external environment. The government will stick to a proactive fiscal policy and a prudent monetary policy. Strong support will be given to scientific and technological innovation, the real economy, and the development of micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises. However. What does China's economy look like through the lens of Western media? Is China struggling or other media struggling to push their narrative? Let's now take a closer look. Ex-expected, the media has been keen on jumping on the bandwagon, with Bloomberg sort of berating China for its disappointing growth. And for CNBC, China's economy seems to be grinding to a halt with signs of stalled recovery. The Economist puts on its white coat and takes the pulse of China's economy. I'm not in the least surprised. After all, we've all been hearing about the coming collapse of China for decades, to quote the title of a book published in 2001. Well, the Western media revels in doom-mongering, and every bit of data can be used to substantiate claims of a coming collapse. Well, that's got news for you. Collapse? It isn't. China's economy is resilient, and before passing judgment on China based on a selective set of data, I would like to advise looking at the bigger picture here. If China's data were reportedly disappointing, it's because that the world is still looking to China for growth. And that's fantastic news. Despite all the talk of decoupling and de-risking, most economies are still heavily betting on China. Well, bad news for China seems bad news for the world economy. So let's get real there for a minute. We've also seen reports on China's deflationary trends. And for those old enough to remember, that's what happened during Japan's lost decade in the 1990s. Will China suffer Japan's fate? Most Western media are sounding the alarm bell, blaming sluggish demand. China is on the brink of deflation. Deflation is looming. The data says that in the first half of the year, China's consumer price index rose 0.7% year-on-year, and the producer price index dropped 3.1% during the first six months. In June, the CPI continued to edge lower, staying flat on a yearly basis, while the PPI fell further to a record low since 2016. But is it a structural problem? Not really, according to Liu Guqian, deputy governor of the People's Bank of China. He said that the challenges currently faced by the Chinese economy are a normal phenomenon in the era following the global COVID-19 pandemic. In response to the country's softening price growth in recent months, Liu predicted that China's Consumer Price Index, or CPI, the main gauge of inflation, will see a U-shaped trajectory this year. And even CNBC is at odds with the deflation narrative, calling it disinflation. However, Macquarie economists Larry Hu and Yu Zhang characterized the condition in China as disinflation, a temporary slowdown of rising prices, rather than deflation, which refers to a more serious problem where there's a persistent decrease in prices over time. So it's more than a readjustment than a structural problem. No lost decade on the horizon, obviously. Plus, China has plenty of leeway to use highly targeted monetary tools. It did so in the past, and it will continue now, as it has many fiscal and monetary policy options available. So now let's dig into what's obsessing many commentators. China's youth unemployment. The surveyed unemployment rate for young people aged 16 to 24 hit a record 21.3 percent in June. Al Jazeera points at China's seemingly poor economic performance and its failure to provide enough jobs. While Business Insider quotes Northwestern University economist Nancy Chan saying that China's economy is in crisis and the nation's young unemployment problem could be at the root of its current troubles. Well, if the economy is going to grow or at least avoid a contraction in the long run, the government must create the conditions for job creation in high productivity sectors and for greater investment in higher education. Well, this is more of a global problem than a just a China problem. As China moves up the value chain and with the ongoing technological innovation and the emergence of new industries, especially in the service sector, the China labor market is consistently evolving creating new opportunities for job seekers and businesses. Flexibility and adaptability are crucial to fixing youth unemployment. No one said it would be old roses and that China has a magic wand to solve all the problems, especially given the sheer size of China's job markets. And commentators have been keen on reading the tea leaves on China's economy, but its futile exercise in tax has its limits. Yes, China's facing numerous challenges and we cannot expect miracles overnight, but perhaps we should read the data more holistically, analyzing important aspects of the economy, such as the quality of the growth, optimization of economic structure, not just the quantitative end result figures. Now, let's see what my guests make of these economic data, and more generally, of China's economic prospects for 2023. Is China's star on the wane? How will China navigate its road to speedy recovery? Well, to talk more about these, I'm joined by Mr. He Wen, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, joining me in Shanghai. Great to see you, Mr. He. And Mr. William Lee, Chief right, Economist at Milken Institute, joining me from Henderson, Nevada. Thank you for joining us. And Mr. Saurabh Gupta, Senior Asia-Pacific International Relations Policy Specialist, at the Institute for China America Studies. Joining me from Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. So Mr. Lee, why don't I start with you? China's newly released data in the second quarter has not been interpreted in the most positive way. A lot of reports in the West have been focusing on this, saying that China's recovery is losing steam with faltering business confidence. Let me get your read on this. What do you think after seeing the data?
2: I think that characterization is coming about because the pattern that we've seen in the West of a post-COVID recovery is a very rapid spurt of growth that is almost in the double digits. And then it starts to eventually taper off. And we expected that from China as well when it released uh, the COVID-19 restrictions. When we saw the first quarter is really quite strong, but unfortunately the second quarter didn't continue that momentum, people started to ask the question whether there are any fundamental vulnerabilities that are holding back China from the experiencing the typical pattern of recovery so I think that's the source of concern It's sort of a, a query as to why is China different from every other recovery we have seen in the world not so much a, a blame of China but rather a question that says are there's other things going on
1: so different patterns are being observed when it comes to recovery in China and other parts of the world but Mr Gupta do you think that these analyses have been making fair assessments
0: not particularly fair assessments they've been they've been they've been looking at it's 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 a glass half full, glass half empty situation, and they've been making the pessimistic assumption. Yes, there are certain headwinds that China is facing, cyclical headwinds, and larger, broader st- structural reforms that are necessary. I think China has enormous potential for growth. Frankly, I've seen in the light of its larger modernization program, I think we are just about two thirds of the the gone two the distance towards china's modernization there's still i'd say about three decades more to go require important structural reforms we can discuss those later but at this point of time yes there are headwinds to growth in the in the short term but i think the government is making the right decision in not throwing money at the problem and having a stimulus as much as working through those issues which are there in the economy and trying to again animate the the animal instincts of the private sector so that they can get back to invest investing because at the end of the day they create 80% of jobs in urban areas, and you really need to have the private sector come out of the shadows and start putting a footprint down and, and, and its mark in the Chinese economy.
1: Mr. Hu, let me get your take on what's been said, especially the parts by Mr. Li um, talking about where do these concerns from Western countries come from? Instead of uh, blaming China, they're trying to figure out what's really happening here. What do you think, Mr. Ho?
3: My focus is not to figure for the first half, but for the second quarter. For well, the second quarter, China GDP grew by 6.3% year on year. But last year's for the second quarter was extremely low base, 0.4% point, uh, growth. So make the two-year average of only 3.3%. That's exceptionally low. We should certainly improve that. The, we should also find the reasons because of the inadequate demand. Either in industry or in consumer markets, and especially, we should not neglect the export sector. Net export contributed a negative 0.6 percentage points to China GDP for first half, but first half of last year it contributed positively 0.5 percentage point. So we see problems in different sides, and now the central government had. Have adopted a number of measures, and also the recently set out the 21-point measures supporting the private economy. I'm sure that we will see the economy pick up in the second half of this year.
1: But well, Mr. Li, talk to us about your thoughts on the China collapse theory. I mean, are you surprised to see that after seeing China has become the world's second biggest economy, after seeing how resilient the economy could become? That this theory is still around is there any merit to it
2: well i, I think it goes too far to say that there's a, a a cheering group out there that's cheering for china's collapse uh in fact i think most people are cheering for china's uh, uh, success because many of the economies of the world are tied to the success of china especially in asia and including the united states after all china is a vital part of the global supply chain of which the united states has benefited so I think the real questions I think have to settle on what my my colleagues have just said. Do we have sufficient domestic demand within China to have it a self-sufficient growing engine for the rest of the world? Will China be able to be the second largest economy that provides an engine for growth for the rest of the world as the rest of the world is slowing down because it's fighting inflation? Uh, and China fortunately has got the right balance of supply and demand so that it itself domestically has not experienced the kind of inflation we've seen in other parts of the world, including uh, Europe and and, and the United States. So I think those are the kind of uh, perspectives that we have to have here. And and many of the American companies that are in China, from JP Morgan to Tesla to, to Bill Gates coming to China, they all say the world is committed to staying in China. And the world is committed to China's success because the world's success depends on China's success. So I think those are the kind of perspectives that are really dominant in the West. The questions that are being asked would be, is China continuing to be a good place for more investment? Should we be putting more money into China or is China's own policy of diversifying its production, going upscale to higher value-added production, and moving a lot of industries out of China, the low-value-added stuff, to other parts of Asia, should we be following those dollars? And so the the, the questions are really much more uh, a tactical question about where best Western dollars should be going, and we're looking for the government for guidance as to where it is that China really wants to make use of foreign capital inflows, which it has clearly invited in the last uh, several statements that the, the, uh, President Xi and others have made. So I think those are the kind of uh, perspectives that we have to keep in mind. And there really isn't a uh, an army out there mm. cheering for China's demise. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Everyone is cheering for China's success.
1: Those are legitimate concerns, I must say. These questions on investors uh, from the West uh, are also on the mind of Chinese business people, entrepreneurs here. And there is, is the talk of deflation, right? When the West is battling inflation, some say that the real risk for china is deflation mr gupta let me get your thoughts on this how real is the threat does what's happening here really qualify for a deflation
0: no and as you mentioned earlier it's more of china is facing disinflation rather than deflation china went through deflation during the early part of the 2010s and that hurt its capacity to grow. And that's why the fear is that it might slip from disinflation to deflation. I, I don't think that's about to happen and that's going to happen. I think there's huge amount of growth that's still in the economy, which can be had. The, let me get to the bottom of why we talk about this disinflation, deflation business. And part of it is that, you know, in China, there is excess fixed asset investment, particularly in the property sector. And there's perhaps overinvestment in the property sector. The government recognizes there's overinvestment and that's why it doesn't want to juice the property sector. Of course, it doesn't want to collapse in that sector because the sector is so important. But because that sector is so large, but is not getting enough support, rightly so, uh, it is also hurting larger growth prospects. And therefore the, the, the focus here should be, how does one pivot away from that fixed asset investment growth model To a more model, which is more consumption based, advanced manufacturing based. And frankly, China is making that transition and that transition needs to happen faster so that people are not so fixated in terms of the asset values of their property, but more in terms of the asset values of their financial investments in the financial market and therefore will feel freer to consume. Of course, there's structural reforms like hukou reform, which can be done as well as helping resource local governments because you know, private entrepreneurs and private capital, it's a very delicate dance in China between private entrepreneurs and with local governments, the federal government, the central government is at a level above. And that's the area where there is still necessity for support, but local government finances need to be cleaned out. So, I mean, it's these sort of issues which are there and have been there for a while, but all of them are amenable to a resolution. And that's why I think China is on the cusp of transitioning to a different growth model, which will see it realize five percent growth for a long period of time. And not now we're not talking, I mean, this is like the IMF talk in terms of I mean, for five years, I'm thinking in terms of 15, 20 years, China can maintain a decent growth capacity, but it needs to make that transition in terms of its economic growth model.
1: Yeah, there's a host of factors at play here when it comes to China's economic performance. Mr. Hull, on top of sluggish domestic demand, what about external factors? What about all these talks about decoupling, de-risking from European countries, from the United States? How are they impacting uh, China's recovery?
3: We have seen some best Stages of decoupling. For instance, for the first half or first five months of this year, China's export to the United States, according to the US official data, fell by 27% year on year. But the US imports from the European Union and from Mexico grew rapidly. So that's a part of the vestige of decoupling. But that's not the real decoupling. We're far away from decoupling, decoupling. This is not possible. But anyway, it affects China's export performances and uh, as a whole passed on to the performance of, of the whole economy. So for the, we should continue to open our door widely to welcome investors from the world, including from the United States, to do business in China and to make sure to the world that China's economy is stable and has a vast prospects in a long time. And so as to attract the world investors and to so as to prove to the world that a decoupling is not possible.
1: I want to take some time to look at youth unemployment. We're all very concerned about it. China has seen its highest um, unemployment rate in this age group since uh, the record began. Mr. Gupta, what's the biggest problem here? What seems to be not working?
0: It's part of that transition to a different growth model. China is moving out there. You know, over the last few years there have been certain crackdowns that China did to get its marketplace in order in the digital sector particularly. But much of that crackdown has now come to an end, and I think there is more regulatory certainty. Now, places like the platform economy, the digital economy are huge, huge employers. And therefore, as that part, as private capital comes out of the sidelines and starts investing again, I think that is where youth employment issues will be tackled because, as I said, the private sector creates almost 80% of jobs in, in the Chinese economy, and they are on the sidelines at this moment. But I think that process is easing. But we'll have to see in this regard, and it's important because you do want people to have money in their pocket to set up their lives because that's how you can have consumption over the life horizon and that's how the economy will also do well. Mm. If I may just jump back once on one point in terms of the decoupling issue, you know you were talking externally, yes decoupling is a real problem but I think it's more from a structural and more medium term perspective. I think the immediate problem at this time is. You know, in the U.S. economy, in the Western economies, the advanced economies, interest rates are still too high because inflation is still too high. And that is causing economic growth to suffer. And therefore, they are having problem with consumption, basically consumption of exports from China and from other parts of the world. And that's why China's export performance is not good. But that has primarily to do with the lack of of demand invest in economies. Mm-hmm. And I think that will change, uh, not in a year, but perhaps in, 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 in over the longer spell. So the external sector is dodgy right now, and I'm not pinning my hopes on that. But, but China must continue to become, stay the world champion of intermediate goods production and exports. And I think that's a good strategy.
1: And Mr. Lee, I do want to get your take on youth unemployment problem. I mean, this is a global issue rather than a, just a China problem. We've seen this problem in a lot of European countries, in Spain, in Italy, and in the United States as well. How are you looking at China's efforts in tackling this issue, providing about, uh, you know, one million internships or focusing on vocational training for 15 million people? Is that enough? Will it work?
2: Actually, you're absolutely right to point to that uh, figure, uh, the fact that... Youth unemployment is a problem all over the world. Integrating new workers into the workforce uh, is something that every country is facing. United States, Europe. Europe has got double-digit youth unemployment numbers for the longest time and has lived with that. But I think the reason why I, among other Western commentators, have pointed to China and China's problem is because youth unemployment is generally addressed, as Mr. Gupta said, when private sector creates a lot of jobs and innovative jobs and high-value-added jobs and high-production jobs. And usually the source of those those, uh, jobs are going to come from the high-tech industries, uh, the Alibabas and Tencents of the world, the innovators that make use of the very well-trained people coming out of uh, Beijing University and, and the great engineering schools that China has. But when we saw, over the last two years, a shift in the policies of China toward Tencent, Alibaba, and some of these larger technological companies... the. Western investors became concerned and we pointed to the unemployment numbers of the youth to say, hey, that policy switch has got huge consequences for the absorption of the next generation of workers and the source of productivity for China. So what is going on there? And and now that we seem to get some clarification that China has in fact not really changed this attitude toward technology that is welcoming innovation. In fact, it's trying to spur innovation. Um, there may be some, some easing of, of concerns, but I think the fact that that reversal took place and now a, a, an explanation and the rise in youth unemployment puts together a lot of circumstantial evidence that says, well, China may have some deeper structural vulnerabilities that the policymakers have to address. And so youth unemployment is really at the spearhead of things that Western investors look at to see the health of China. When that number starts to go down and go down in a convincing, permanent, uh, sustainable fashion, then more people will be convinced that China is going to be back on the right path to the kind of growth rates it had before. But if it's not able to get that youth unemployment down, uh, then I think this can have even more consequences for the other policies of China, which is boosting domestic consumption. But there are two things that economists know drive consumption. One is wealth and the other one is income. Family income is a hugely important thing. And when my children are not getting jobs, I'm not going to be consuming, right? I'm going to be trying to help my children. And when the property market is in disarray and my wealth is uncertain, I'm not going to consume. So these are two sources of vulnerability that we have in the Chinese economy that we in the West are looking at and saying, what are they doing about it? And and so I think that's really the, the, the questions that are being asked, and, 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 and we're hoping to get some clear answers.
1: Thank you very much. I guess that's all the time we have for this edition of Hotline Buster. We appreciate all your perspectives, Mr. Gupta, Mr. Hull, and Mr. Lee. Great to have all of you with us. Bye for now.